0: Hello and welcome to the murderosity podcast where we discuss all things murder mayhem the mysterious and the macabre i'm your co-host bob hancock joined on the other side by rebel roan rebel how are you doing this week
1: i'm doing good how are you
0: you know i can't complain at all the weather is beautiful we're we're enjoying some you know nice wintry ish weather so i really can't complain too much how about you
1: yeah, it's uh, the weather here is fantastic. It's like my 50s and, you know, it's warm and I can't complain at all. I mean, the nights get a little chilly, but that's about it.
0: Now, this week, I believe we have one of our listeners to thank for the inspiration behind this case. Is that correct? We do. We're giving a shout out to Sarah James for
1: this case. So thank you very much for submitting that. And we look forward to sharing with everybody.
0: So where does our story take place?
1: Our next story takes place in Villisca, Iowa, in 1912. In the early 1900s, Villisca was a small town of 2,500 people. It was a busy, close-knit community with business-lined streets and several dozen trains pulling into the depot on a daily basis.
0: Vallisca is actually a city in Montgomery County, Iowa, in the U.S. Now, its population has declined drastically. In the 2020 census, it was 1,132 people. Now, Montgomery County is located in the southwestern area of the state of Iowa. As of the 2020 census, the entire county had about 10,330 people living there. Its population has declined since a peak in about the 1900s, since urbanization and the decline of family farms. The Mm -hmm. county seat itself is in Red Oak. And the county was founded by European-American migrants from the eastern areas of, of Europe in the 1850s. It was named in honor of Richard Montgomery, who was actually an American Revolutionary War General, who was in 1775 killed while trying to capture Quebec City in Canada. Now, the county has been largely rural and devoted to agriculture, and the county was first surveyed in 1852. It's obviously famous for the site of the Villisca Axe murders, which were committed in 1912, as you stated. But of note, Clyde Cessna the founder of the Cessna Aircraft Company, was actually born there. Unfortunately, I can't give you any more interesting topics because that's about it for the area other than what you're about to let us know.
1: Yeah, so, it sounds like the population really dwindled down there.
0: It it really did. Uh, the decline of the the family farm situation for more industrialized has really taken a toll on some of the Midwestern states, so... But I have a feeling that's not exactly what you want to talk to us about.
1: It's not. So in 1912, the town built the only publicly funded armory in the state of Iowa. The company housed there, participated in the 1916 Mexican Expedition, World War I, World War II, as well as the Korean and Vietnam Wars. The Moore family were both well-known and well-liked in the community. The night of June 9, 1912, the six family members had two overnight guests. Josiah B. Moore, sometimes called Joe, was one of Villisca's most prominent businessmen who had been a resident of Villisca for 13 years and had been employed by Frank Jones at Jones' store for nine years. On December 6, 1899, he married Sarah Montgomery, and they had four children together, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul. Sarah was an active member of the Presbyterian Church and led Children's Day exercises on June 9, 1912. Herman was 11 at the time and was a lot like his father, often being seen at his side. Catherine was 10, Boyd was 7, and Paul was 5. The night of June 9, 1912, Catherine requested that Lena Gertrude Stillinger and her sister Ina Mae Stillinger stay over. Both were born on the Stillinger family farm just outside of Villisca. Ina was 8 years old and Lena was 12. On June 10, 1912, or at around 7 a.m., the Moore's neighbor, Mary Pickham, noticed that the family had not come out to do their morning chores and became concerned. She went over and knocked on the door. When no one answered, she tried to open the door and discovered it was locked. Peckham let the Morris chickens out and called Josiah's brother, Ross Moore. He also tried to knock on the door and even shouted to try and obtain a response. However, he had a spare copy of the house key and used it to unlock the door. Peckham stayed out on the porch and Ross went into the parlor, opening the guest bedroom door. There he found the still under sister's bodies on the bed, Immediately, he told Peckham to call Henry, also known as Hank Horton, who was primary peace officer, and he arrived a short time later.
0: So, a peace officer, by definition, appointment as a peace officer requires the administration of an oath of office. Peace officers typically do not have the same level of authority as police officers, and their peace officer duties are usually limited to a very specific assigned duties. However, Peace officers may be part of the police force, but they don't necessarily have to be, whereas police officers obviously do have to be part of the police force. I remember we used to have peace officers assigned to the schools. I don't know if you had any at your high school since we went to, uh, dare I say, opposing high schools Mm -hmm. in the same town. Um, But we had one at the high school. And then we also had another peace officer who was part of the police force who was the dare officer and he helped with the drug abuse resistance education courses that were offered at the elementary schools so
1: we had a our peace officer his name was big al and he was pretty amazing actually
0: we called ours cheech for reasons (laughs) i still don't really know but I actually I actually really really like the guy he was he was pretty fair he was firm but fair is like the best way to to put him but he always took things very seriously if someone had anything to report or to talk about and sometimes like you would see kids just going up to him and talking to him about like almost as a counselor so I have no idea if he's still there or not but I I hope I hope so (laughs)
1: Yeah, Big Al gave me a ride on his motorcycle on my 18th birthday. So good times.
0: I mean, see, that's 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 all part of. Peace officers typically also are more involved in the community, and they they create bonds and ties. So, yeah, I mean, that's so that's that's what this gentleman is here. He's, as I recall, he he is part of the police force, but he's, the localized version of it. I mean, this is a small town, so the chances of needing a whole lot of. You know, crime fighters is, is not high, though, given what happens, maybe maybe they <laughs> should have, I suppose. Right. Yeah. So when he arrived, what 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 happens?
1: So Horton searched the remainder of the house and discovered the entire Moore family, as well as the Stillinder sisters, had been bludgeoned to death. The axe used in the murders belonged to Josiah and was found in the guest bedroom with the Stylinder sisters. Doctors concluded that the murders had taken place between midnight and 5 a.m. Allegedly, there were two cigarette butts in the attic that suggested the perpetrator or perpetrators waited until the inhabitants were asleep. There are varying accounts as to whether these were actually found or not. The killer or killers began in the master bedroom, murdering Josiah and Sarah. Josiah received more blows from the axe than any other victims. His face had been cut so badly that his eyes were missing, and the ceiling had a gouge mark from where the axe was lifted to murder him. The blade of the axe was used on Sarah, and the more children were bludgeoned with the blood of the axe. After the children were murdered, the killers returned to the master bedroom, knocking over a shoe that had been filled with blood. Then they moved downstairs to the guest bedroom to murder the cylinders. Investigators believe that all of the victims, except for Lena, were asleep when they were murdered. The rest of the family was slain in their beds. It appears that after the murders took place, a four pound slab of bacon was taken out of the icebox and laid next to the axe. Investigators also found untouched food and bloody water during the search. After the search, investigators allowed people inside to see if they could have committed the crime, which completely contaminated the weapon.
0: So crime scene contamination, right? The issue of contamination of physical evidence has painfully brought notoriety to several criminal cases. By Webster's dictionary definition, contamination is to make impure, corrupt, by contact, pollute, or taint. Now, potential contamination of physical evidence can occur at the crime scene during packaging, collection, and transportation of evidence to a secured facility like a laboratory, and also during evidence analysis and storage. So while forensic scientists in the laboratory are very sensitive to the issue of contamination and have developed protocols to identify and to reduce the risk of contamination, law enforcement even to this day has been a bit slower to incorporate precautions in contamination prevention, despite what you might see on TV. So recent advances in forensic DNA technology are making it even more important that crime scene personnel become more sensitive to the issues of contamination. Now crime scene contamination usually results through the actions of personnel at the scene. In general, the greater number of people that are at the scene, the more likely it is that the scene or evidence itself will be contaminated. So people at the scene can deposit hairs, fibers, trace materials from their clothing. They can destroy latent footwear or fingerprints. Footwear patterns can also be deposited by crime scene personnel or by people entering the scene. So when two objects come in contact with each other, they often will exchange trace evidence. And when a crime scene is entered, not only is there potential to leave trace evidence behind, but also to take trace evidence away from the scene. And right here, it feels like the police are being woefully ignorant of of this. Now, again, this is in the 1910s that that time period. Mm -hmm. But even back then, they still had fingerprint evidence. They still had certain forensic evidence that they That they're contaminating like crazy here. And, yeah, I'll get more into the the ineptitude later, but this is just gross negligence in my opinion. I agree. So, did they find anything else with, with any of the victims?
1: Yes. So, Lena had apparently attempted to fight off her attacker. She was the only one of the eight to do so. She was found lying crosswise on the bed with a defensive wound on her arm. Many experts also suggested that she may have been the victim of some type of sexual molestation by the killer. Her nightgown was pushed up to her waist and she was not wearing underwear. Later, this was proven to be false, but I wasn't able to find a whole lot of information about how they proved it to be false, what exactly, you know, as far as how how they determined it.
0: So I also wasn't quite able to figure anything more out about that. I mean... We discussed in our last episode um, rape kits and things of that nature, which weren't quite around back then. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming it had to have been during an autopsy by a physician or or something along those lines. But one thing that they did note with her were defensive wounds. Now, a defensive wound or a self-defense wound is an injury that's received by the victim of an attack while trying to defend themselves against an assailant or assailants. Defensive wounds are often found on the hands and forearms of a victim, as if they were raising them to protect themselves, normally the head or face, or to fend off the assault, but it can also be present on, like, the feet or legs if the victim is attempting to kick away the assailant while they're laying down. Now, the appearance and nature of the wound varies, obviously, with the type of weapon used and the location of the injury and it may be presented as a laceration, an abrasion, contusion, bone fractures, things of that nature. But where a victim has time to raise hands or arms before being shot by an assailant, sometimes the injury may also be a gunshot wound. Severe lacerations of the palms of the hand or even partial amputations of the fingers may result from the victim grasping at the blade of a weapon during an attack. So in forensic pathology, the presence of defense wounds is highly indicative of homicide and also proves that the victim was at least initially conscious and able to offer some sort of resistance during the attack. Now, defense wounds may be classified as either active or passive. victim of a knife attack, for example, would receive active defensive wounds from grasping at the knife's blade and passive defensive wounds on the back of the hand if it was raised up to protect the face. So, what we've seen here, though, was that this woman was awake she was trying to defend herself definitely murder with malice aforethought yes so after they they find lena what happens
1: so the county coroner dr lindquist arrived at the moore house at around 9 a.m on june 10th 1912 he reviewed the crime scene and met with horton and sheriff Orrin jackson to review the information they had collected Lindquist called members of the coroner's jury in the late afternoon, but no one entered the house to view the bodies until much later, and it was after 10 p.m. when he and County Attorney Ratcliffe gave permission for an undertaker to remove them. The fire station had been set up as a temporary morgue, and it wasn't until around 2 a.m. that all the bodies had been transported. On June 11, 1912, the coroner's jury convened for an inquest, where they called 14 witnesses to testify. The first witness was Mary Peckham, who was the first to notice something wrong at the Moor house. Peckham testified that she lived directly next door to the Moors, and she had seen them before they left for church on Sunday evening. She did not see them return, as she had gone to bed around 8 p.m. She stated that she did not hear anything from the home during the night and was out in her yard hanging the washing between 5 a.m. and 6 a.m. when she noticed that the house was unusually quiet at 7 a.m. After attempting to wake the Moors, she let their chickens out and checked on their other livestock. When she saw that they were still tied, she called Ross Moore. Then she saw Ed Selly, one of Josiah's employees, enter the barn to feed the horses. Ross then showed up with a key to open the door, as it was locked and there was no key in the lock outside of that door. Peckham stated that she stayed on the porch while Ross checked the house out, but after finding the Stillinger sisters deceased, he came back out and told her something awful had happened and to call the sheriff. The second witness they called was Ed Selly. He testified that on June 10, 1912, he received a call from Ross after he opened the store. Ross asked if he knew where Josiah was. Sully then called the elder Moore's home to see if he had gone to visit his father. Josiah's mother told him that he had not been there. Then Sully received a call from Peckham asking if Josiah was at the store and told him that the livestock needed tended to. Sully left the store and went to the Moore house where he fed the horses. He returned to the store and received another call telling him to bring the marshal to the house. When he and the marshal arrived, they all re-entered the house. Sally saw the blood in the downstairs bedroom and went back outside to wait. Harry Moore came over as well, and when the marshal—and when Marshal Horton came back outside, he said that there was someone killed in every bed. The house was locked, and the marshal left to call the coroner and the sheriff. Sally returned to the store to call the John Deere people in Omaha to tell them the news. Sally went back to the house to, with his father, but did not re-enter the home. When asked about the possible enemies of Josiah Moore, Selly admitted that Sam Moyer, a brother-in-law of Josiah, was a possible threat. He stated, he, Joe, says I got a brother-in-law that don't like me, said he would get even with me sometime. He stated he didn't know of anyone else that would want to murder the Moore family. Then the inquest interviewed Dr. J. Clark Cooper, the first physician that arrived at the scene. Cooper testified that Hank Horton entered his office and said to go with him. Cooper asked why, and Horton seemed frightened and said, Joe Moore and all his family were murdered in bed. Horton went to the Peckhams and retrieved the keys, then returned, and he, Cooper, Horton, Dr. Huff, and the Presbyterian minister, Mr. Ewing, entered the home together. The group entered the dining room and moved to the first bedroom floor. Cooper stated, All we could see was an arm of someone sticking from under the edge of the cover with blood on the pillows. And I went over and lifted the covers and saw what I supposed was a body, some entire stranger and a mere child at the back of the bed. I did not recognize them at all. Neither did any of the people, the others then that were with me. And we merely saw that they were dead and that there were only two in the bed. And then we stepped out into the parlor. At the top of the stairs, there was a lamp on the floor. Horton moved the lamp out of the way, and they continued into the bedroom. The lamp was sitting at the foot of the bed in our way, so Hank set it to one side to allow us to pass, and Hank was ahead of me and said, "Here is Joe." And I saw that Mr. and Mrs. Moore were both dead, and I immediately went into the south room, then we began to count the children. Cooper testified that he did not touch the bodies, but that the bedding was pretty stiff with blood and brain matter on the pillows. He estimated that the murders had taken place at least five to six hours prior. He stated that it seemed that the faces of the victims had been covered and that after they'd been murdered. The fourth witness was Jesse Moore, the wife of Ross Moore. Jesse stated that Mrs. Peckham had called her on June 10, 1912 to see if anything had happened to Moore's father. Jesse then called the store and spoke to Sally, who returned the call to say that no one could reach anyone at Josiah's home and that he wasn't at his father or the Montgomery's home either. A little while later, a neighbor arrived at her home to tell her that they'd been murdered. She stated that she entered the home later in the day to obtain family photos for the press and that she didn't know of any possible enemies. The fifth witness called was Dr. F.S. Williams, who was the second physician to enter the home. He stated that Sally stopped him on the street and told him a doctor was needed at the Moore Home for an examination. When they arrived at the house, Dr. Cooper was and another party were leaving the house. He entered the house and viewed the bodies. He stated that Joe was lying on the left side of the bed on his bunk, his left hand on his chest, and that the faces were all beaten in. Sarah was lying beside him. He examined the room with the children in it, noting that their heads had also been covered and blood was spattered around the room. In the guest bedroom, he noted that Lena's cylinder had moved after being struck and that both were difficult to identify. He testified that there were no footprints outside the house. Next, the coroner called Edward Landers to testify. He was visiting his mother for the summer and stayed just a few houses down from the Moors. Landers stated he went to bed around 9 p.m. that evening. According to Landers, just before he fell asleep, he said he heard a sound outside and stated that it sounded, quote-unquote, like one boy hooting for another on the outside somewhere. He fell asleep a short while later. Moore was the next to take the stand. He stated that after being called to the Moore House, he entered the parlor and didn't notice anything out of place. Then when he saw the blood in the guest bedroom, he left. He stated he didn't wait long enough to see anything else. Another one of Josiah's brothers was called to the stand named Fenwick Moore. He stated he didn't know much about Josiah's business affairs and didn't know anyone that would have wanted him dead. Velisca Marshall Hank Horton came next, though he spent very little time testifying. He confirmed that he was approached by Sally between 8.15 and 8.30 Monday morning and asked that he accompany him to the Moore home. As soon as he saw the bodies, he went to get Dr. Cooper. He stated that there was no unusual odors and the blinds were down. He was then dismissed. John Lee Van Gilder, Josiah's nephew, and Harry Moore, his brother, were also called to the stand. Neither knew much about Joe's business or personal life, and aside from Van Gilder speaking briefly to Josiah on Sunday afternoon, there was no additional information they could provide. Then Blanche Stellinger, the eldest of the Stellinger children, took the stand. She was the sister of Ina and Lena. Josiah Moore had called her home at 6 p.m. on Sunday night asking to speak to her mother. When she told him that she was outside, he replied that the girls were going to church with the family and didn't want to walk back to their grandmothers in the dark. He asked if it would be okay for them to stay overnight. Blanche told him she thought it would be okay if they stayed. Joseph Stillinger then took the stand. They asked about his hired help and whether or not he knew of anyone that could have committed the crime. Then he was asked if he called the Moore house on Sunday morning, to which he answered that his wife did. He stated, I remember she phoned trying to get the house. I did not ask her about the particular time, but she expected the children back just before school time. The last witness called was Charles Moore, another of Josiah's brothers. He could not identify the axe, believed to be the murder weapon, as Josiah's, but did admit that he kept one in the coal shed. He also stated that he believed it was a habit of Josiah's to lock up the house from inside when they went to sleep. He stated, I went there several mornings after the team to go in the country, and of course I always went to the dining room in the front, and they would not have the door open, and I would have to wait until someone came and opened the door, would lock the rest of the house on the inside, and keep the key in the inside. Initially, the suspects included Lee Van Gilder, an ex-husband of Sarah's sister Mary. Van Gilder had some brushes with law enforcement in the past and was known to be prone to violence. Although they were divorced, there was bad blood between them, but he was later cleared. There were several other suspects as well, but no one was ever convicted of the murders. In the days following the crimes, there were new leads daily in the newspapers. Many believe that Frank F. Jones, who was a prominent resident of the town as well as Iowa State Senator, was responsible. Josiah Moore worked for Jones at his store for several years before opening his own company in 1908. Jones was extremely upset that Moore had left his company, as well as managing to take the John Deere franchise with him. There was a rumor that Moore had had an affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, Donna. Detective Wilkerson of the Burns Detective Agency openly accused Jones and his son, Albert, of hiring a man named William Mansfield to commit the murders. Both denied this accusation. William Mansfield was a prime suspect nonetheless. He was also known as George Worley and Jack Turnbaugh. According to Wilkerson, Mansfield was a cocaine fiend and serial killer. Wilkerson also believed Mansfield was responsible for the axe murders of his wife, infant child, father-in-law, and mother-in-law in in Blue Island, Illinois, on July 5, 1914, two years after the Velisca murders, as well as axe murders in Paula, Kansas, four days before the Velisca murders. He also believed he was responsible for the murders of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller in Aurora, Colorado. Wilkerson's investigation alleged that all of the murders were committed in the same manner, indicating that the same person committed them. He stated he could prove that Mansfield was present in each place the night of the murders. In each murder, the victims were hacked to death with an axe and the mirrors in the home were covered. A burning lamp with the chimney off was left at the foot of the bed and a wash basin used by the murderer was found in the kitchen. The killer wore gloves, so he didn't leave fingerprints. Mansfield's prints were on file at the federal military prison at Leavenworth. A grand jury opened an investigation in 1916, and Mansfield was arrested in Kansas City and brought to Montgomery County. However, Mansfield had an alibi for the Villisca murders and was verified by payroll records. Mansfield was released due to lack of evidence and filed a lawsuit against Wilkerson and awarded $2,225. Another prime suspect was Reverend George Jacqueline Kelly, who was a traveling preacher. After several years of preaching around the Midwest, Kelly and his wife settled in Macedonia, Iowa in 1912. Kelly was described as peculiar and had reportedly suffered a mental breakdown as a teenager. As an adult, he was accused of peeping and asking young women and girls to pose nude for him. On June 8, 1912, he went to Villisca to teach at the Children's Day Services. He left town between 5 and 5.50 a.m. on June 10, 1912, just a few hours before the bodies were found. In the weeks after the murders, Kelly showed a fascination with the case and wrote letters to the police, investigators, and family of the deceased. Private investigator wrote back asking for any details he might know about the murders. Kelly replied in detail, claiming to have heard sounds and possibly witnessed the murders. However, his known mental illness brought questions as to whether he knew details because he had committed the murders or if he was just imagining them. In 1904, Kelly was arrested for sending obscene material through the mail. He was sexually harassing a woman who had applied for a job as his secretary. He was sent to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., which was a mental hospital. In 1917, Kelly was arrested and charged with the Villisca Axe murders. After many hours of interrogation, he confessed but later recanted. He even confessed in court, but the jury didn't believe him. The first trial resulted in a hung jury, and he was acquitted by the second. In May 1913, a federal officer named M.W. McClary announced that he had solved the Villisca murders, as well as another 22 that had also been committed around the same time. The theory that Henry Lee Moore, no relation to the Moore family, was a serial killer responsible. Moore was convicted of the murders of his mother and maternal grandmother in Columbia, Missouri, just a few months after the Velisca case, and they'd also been murdered with an axe. Henry had been released from Kansas State Reformatory in Hutchinson, Kansas, April 11, 1911, where he'd served a sentence for a forgery charge. During the Velisca investigation, other axe murders came to light. A series of murders in Colorado Springs, Colorado occurred in September 1911. H.C. Wayne, his wife, and child, along with A.J. Burnham and her two children, were bludgeoned to death. In October 1922, a family was killed in Monmouth, Illinois, and then a week later, five members of a family in Ellsworth, Kansas, were murdered in their sleep. A week prior to the Bullisca murders, a man and his wife were killed in Powell, Kansas. Moore lived with his mother and grandmother from the winter of 1911 to the summer of 1912 and left to take a job on the railroad. Moore served 36 years of a life sentence before being paroled December 2, 1949. He was convicted of murders, but not in the Belisket case. Among the list of suspects was every stranger in the area, which included the homeless and transient population. This included a man named Andy Sawyer. According to a bridge foreman and pile driver for the Burlington Railroad, Sawyer approached Thomas Dyer and his crew in Creston, Iowa at 6 a.m. on the morning of the murders and asked for employment. He was clean-shaven and wore a brown suit, but his shoes were covered in mud and pants were wet nearly to the knees. Despite this, he was given a job on the spot as the crew was down a man. Dyer testified to the grand jury that later that evening, when the crew reached Fontenelle, Iowa, Sawyer bought a newspaper and went off by himself to read. The front page of the paper bore the article about the Velisca murders. Sawyer slept in his clothes and was often alone. He also slept with an axe and discussed the Velisca murders often, talking about whether or not a suspect had been apprehended. According to Dyer, Sawyer told him that he had been in Villisca the night of the murders and had heard of them. He was afraid he'd be a suspect, so he left and that's why he showed up in Creston. Dyer suspected him to be the culprit and turned him into the sheriff on June 18, 1912. Before the sheriff arrived, Sawyer was reportedly rubbing his head with both hands, then suddenly jumped up and said to himself, I will cut your heads off. At the same time, he made striking motions with the axe and began hitting the piles in front of him. Dyer's son, J.R., testified that the crew was driving through Villisca one day and Sawyer told him that he would show him where the man that killed the Moore family got out of town. Sawyer said that the killer jumped over a manure box about one and a half blocks away, then showed where he crossed the railroad track. There were footprints in the soggy Ground north of the embankment. He then told Jr. to look at the other side of the car, and he pointed to a tree south of the tracks about four blocks away. Despite all of this, Sawyer was dismissed as a suspect as it was discovered that he'd been in Osceola, Iowa, getting arrested for vagrancy on the night of the murders, and the sheriff recalled putting him on a train at approximately 11 p.m. that evening. Another early suspect was Joe Ricks, who was arrested in Monmouth, Iowa, on June 15, 1912. He stepped off a train wearing shoes that were covered in blood. He was thought to be another man who witnessed Faye Van Gilder had seen acting strangely the Saturday prior to the murders. The unknown man had asked for directions to the Moore home. However, she did not identify Ricks as the man, and he was dismissed after explaining that he'd obtained the shoes in a trade. Despite these suspects, there were still many more, and many more confessions to the crimes.
0: So you mentioned that there were many confessions. So, that brings me to A subject that's kind of uh, one that I feel is very, very important and should be discussed more, and that's false confessions, which at least some of these have to be, right? Right. So false confessions actually occur more than most people think, and it's the result of a variety of factors, including the use of coercive and sometimes deceptive tactics during an interrogation. A lot of people think if you, if you were innocent, there's no way you confess. In fact, it's hard to imagine why an innocent person would confess to a crime that they didn't commit. However, research has shown that false confessions can take place due to law enforcement's use of intimidation, force, coercive tactics, isolation during interrogations, deceptive methods that include lying about evidence, and, and many more reasons. Sometimes the person Being interrogated is of diminished mental capacity, and they believe that they're actually helping law enforcement by doing so to catch the real killer. There's a lot of aggressive interrogation tactics out there, and I've watched several videos of these tactics used on people that are of diminished mental capacity, and it's pretty disgusting to see. It is, yeah. An innocent person may also falsely confess because of increased stress, mental exhaustion, promises of lenient sentences, or challenges with understanding their constitutional rights. People with intellectual disabilities, children, uh, people with language barriers, these are people that are particularly vulnerable due to lack of comprehension. Now, on average, people who falsely confessed were interrogated for up to 16 hours before admitting to a crime that they did not commit. Research shows that the reliability of confession is greatly reduced after prolonged interrogation. In some cases, they were convicted despite the fact that DNA evidence clearly contradicted their supposed involvement. In these instances, prosecutors conjured theories persuasive enough to convince juries to vote guilty, even though the DNA evidence strongly supported innocence. And therein lies the problem where it's more important to get a conviction than to get the perpetrator. And you see things like the innocence files and things of that nature where they're they're trying to really go in and figure out these cases like there have been a number of people on death row and people who have been executed who are later shown absolutely did not commit these crimes when these interrogations go on for so long 16 hours or so a lot of times people just break and they just want it to end and they'll say whatever it takes to end it and law enforcement they, they know that they are trained in how to get information and confessions out of people. Now, I'm not saying that all of their tactics are wrong or that they shouldn't try and get to the bottom of things. But in these cases where, I mean, DNA evidence is pretty strong. Though yeah. not perfect, as we've shown in, in past episodes. But definitely stronger than a false confession. So... I-
1: yeah, I always say that my sister would be somebody who would be a, she would do a cult, a false confession just because she's not very good at, like, that aggressive behavior.
0: Right, she just and wants it to stop.
1: Yeah, when I was a kid, I would always blame her for things that I did, and she would eventually confess because she was just, she just wanted it to be over.
0: If I say it, then the, maybe I won't get in too much trouble if I just admit it, and then it'll be over. Yes. Um... That's showing a dark side of rebel I see <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes but so that's my two cents on the false confessions which obviously some of them did this here. so we'll Wait. I'll talk about that a bit later in our episode again but so other than these suspects and the false confessions and whatnot, was there anything else of note that happened?
1: Yes. On March 19, 1917, Reverend J.J. J. Burris arrived in Red Oak due to a subpoena from the Montgomery County Grand Jury who'd been investigating the Villisca murders for the past 10 days. Burris was a pastor of the Church of Christ in Oklahoma City and stated that a man, whose name he could not remember, confessed on his deathbed that he'd committed the murders. He said that the confession was made to him in Raidersburg, Montana in July 1913. He stated, When I arrived at the bedside, I saw at a glance he was at death's door. He was in torment and lived only a short time after I arrived. He said he had been guilty of many wrongs and wanted to make a clean breast before he died. His life was passing rapidly, and it was with great difficulty that he spoke. He was physically unable to dwell much on the details. The man sank back among the pillows. A great load seemed to have been lifted from his mind. In a few minutes, he breathed his last Burris said that the man told him he was living in Villisca at the time of the murders and had formerly been involved in the blacksmith business there. He was about 25 years old and had relatives in Villisca. At the time of his death, the unnamed man was said to have been part owner of a black ship shop in Raidersburg. On March 26, 1931, a prisoner in the county jail in Detroit, Michigan, named Leroy Robinson, but also owned by George Myers, confessed to the murders. He was there awaiting sentencing for burglary, and the confession came after five hours of interrogation. The detectives had received an anonymous tip to question him regarding the Villisca murders. Robinson stated that a minister and businessman promised to pay him $5,000 to kill the family, and that the offer came through an acquaintance that he had met in Kansas City. The acquaintance then took him to Villisca, where he met the man who wanted the job to be done. Allegedly, the confession read, I never knew what the man's name was. He pointed out the house of this family he wanted wiped out. I demanded part of my money from him before I did the job. He gave me $2,000 and said he would give me the rest afterwards. I got an axe and entered the house about midnight. Killed them all, the man, his wife, and their four children. They were all asleep. A little while after, I again met this man who had hired me and told him the job was done. I wanted the rest of my money. He said I'd have to wait. When the businessman refused to pay him the rest of the money until he was sure the family had been killed, Robinson stated he fled town at daybreak and never returned. However, he denied killing the Stillinger sisters. Since the account was only for six murders, he was also dismissed as a suspect. March 30, 1931, Robinson was sentenced to 14 and a half to 15 years in the Michigan State Prison at Jackson for a plot to attempt to break out of the county jail along with 10 prisoners. After the murders, the house remained in estate until 1915, when it was purchased by J. H. Gessman. Over the course of 90 years, it had several owners and was even in danger of being raised at one point. Darwin Lynn won a lowball offer on the property that saved it from being torn down in 1994. The Lynns used the home as a rental for a period of time and underwent a variety of renovations. However, the Lynns began working on the home in 1994 to restore it to its original structure. In 1998, the Moore home was added to the National Register of Historic Places and received the Preservation at its Best award in the small public category from the Iowa Historic Preservation Alliance in 1997. Today, there are tours of the home available. It has been featured on television and people have taken ghost tours there.
0: All right, so this one really hits on just about everything that we try to in this show. There's murder, mm-hmm mystery mayhem macabre it's all there yes i do try to understand the extenuating circumstances that law enforcement faced in this case montgomery county was never a large population this town even less so the amount of experienced officers was not there however i believe firmly that This case was never solved, primarily due to police mismanagement. By this, I'm going to state a few different reasons for that. One is the crime scene contamination first and foremost, allowing people in there, having people handle the murder weapon, seeing, okay, could this person have committed it from this or that? Absolutely unacceptable and unprofessional. Mm-hmm. and again th- this is something that should have been fairly obvious i mean this is this is not long after the jack the ripper murders in london at right. the end of the at the end of the century where they started using these these forensic technologies and whatnot and it's not like in the united states that they hadn't kept up with that as well so to see this mismanagement on that The mishandling of evidence the complete and total lack of care of the crime scene that contributes to it then you have certain police officers that hyper focus on certain suspects and determine that it must be them and so they block out all other possible suspects the biggest one for me on that was william mansfield i understand that he fits a lot of what you need in this case He's believed to have also been a perpetrator and other acts murderers that fit the bill in several places, including our beloved Aurora, Colorado. However, there's obvious there, there's an obvious alibi that he has. Right. So all this time that you spent trying to force him into this position is time that could have been spent finding the actual killer or killers. The interrogation tactics of the police, again, you see long drawn out interrogations and then potential suspects who confess that do have information that do seem to to line up are dismissed because of reasons. It's really, really hard for me to look at this case and think that it couldn't have been solved. Right. Right. Because again, all everything's there. You you have the murder weapon. There are footprints, there are tracks, there are again there 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 are fingerprints. There there are so many opportunities for them to figure this out. And they just threw it away within the first two or three hours. So for me I feel bad for the family. I think that there was no justice whatsoever served here the deathbed confession in Montana could be true. Could be not true. Again, that was something that they never followed up on. I know right. it would have been reasonably hard to, but they could have looked into the blacksmith's trade who was here, who left. So on again, the police just decided it wasn't worth their time basically. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, this, this one, it's a great case study in what not to do in my opinion. Yes. So that's my closing thoughts on this case. If our dear listeners have their own theory crafting on who the murderer could have been and or why, or maybe I missed something, maybe I'm being too harsh, I don't think so, but I'd love to hear your opinions on the case, dear listeners. These are the ones that can really stoke some discussion, the The ones where we don't know who it was. So we'd love to get those comments. Hit us up on any of our social media sites or on our website, leave a comment and we will, we will interact with you for sure. Definitely. So I think that brings us to our missing person of the week rebel. Yes. And who is that this week?
1: This week, we look at Trey Allen glass, who's age 19. He was last seen December 17th, 2023 in Kansas, Oklahoma near Wilkerson ranch. Not much is known about his disappearance. Glass is a member of the United Ketawa Band, has black hair and brown eyes, and is five foot seven tall and is around 130 pounds. He has no scars or tattoos and was last seen wearing a black t-shirt and sweats and a black coat. If anyone has any information on the whereabouts of Trey Allen Glass, please contact the Kansas Police Department at 918-868-2198, referencing case 2023-0096.
0: Well, this, this one is incredibly recent. It is. So I would say that, you know, maybe there's a bit more hope here. Hopefully we can, someone has seen this, this young man and can get some information to the Kansas, Oklahoma police, and we can get this boy home. Yes. Don't want to see him here on our show as a case. So please, if you know anything, give a phone call. We will link this on the website. Uh, is there a picture that'll go there as well, Rebel?
1: Yes, there's a picture that'll go there as well.
0: Excellent. So other than going to our website, where can our dear listeners tell their their friends and family to, to listen to us?
1: So we're on Podbean as well as Apple, Spotify, Amazon, et cetera. We can always be found on social media sites under Murderosity or Murderosity Podcast. And we're always looking for new cases and tips, things like that. So we are always looking for emails at murderosity at gmail.com. Show notes are always on murderosity.com. And we have a link to the podcast from there. So you can always kind of link them up together and listen as you read the show notes.
0: Well, I think this was a pretty intense case. I think that's probably. Good enough for one podcast. Hopefully it was enough to get our listeners to tune in next week where we have even more excitement coming. Yes. Well, I think that's going to do it for me, Rebel. So I'm going to say goodnight to our dear listeners and goodnight to you as well. And we'll catch you on the next one.
1: All right. Stay safe out there.